Good morning. My name is Dee. I'm one of the pastors here at the church and have just the wonderful privilege of helping us to dig into God's Word. But I would like to um, just make mention of a couple things first. Uh, um, one is the bells just make it feel like Advent already. I know it's not Advent, but I just want to go home to the Christmas tree or something. I don't know. It was fantastic. Thank you. Um, I also would like to make mention, kind of a um, qualifier. Melissa made a wonderful announcement about November being um, 30 days of prayer. And I, I just want to clarify for all of those who, this might be your first Sunday here, or um, maybe you're new to this uh, body of believers, that November is not the only time we pray that we don't wait 11 months until finally on November 1st we get a chance to jump into prayer time. It is part of the fabric of who we are. It is part of the culture of this place. We set aside November so that we might learn from one another, that we might grow in this area of our spiritual life, that we might possibly develop some habits that could last all year long or maybe a lifetime. So the invitation into this month in whatever way is meaningful for you is to explore ways by which this part of your spiritual life might uh, grow and expand. Um, a week ago, I, if you were here, you know, if you don't, weren't here, I will let you know that a week ago I told you how to vote. I made it very clear that you're supposed to use a dark inked pen and fill in the oval completely, but also made the appeal that as we vote, which I hope you do, with each oval that you fill in, you might whisper a confession of dependence on God. God is our source. Lord Jesus Christ is the one who guides us. That's where our hope is not in any particular measure, proposition, or elected official. I hope you participate in that way because I think it is a good thing to do. But with each stroke of the pen, I hope and pray that you remind yourself of where our trust belongs. So, um, I would like, if I could, um, at the beginning of this to... Um, start with making a few personal comments. I don't know that they're easy comments, but um, comments nevertheless. The first, I don't know how to say it other than come right out and say it. I am shocked again and again at the amount of violence that is right in front of us all the time. It is in our face. It confronts us, almost taunts us to just dare to look away. But if we tried to look away, I don't know where we'd turn. It's almost as if our only option is to become so numb to the assault in front of us that we don't feel its full impact. 
hand in hand with that are lack of civility in conversation, our inability to step away from continual conflict. It's, it's not like conflict is the aberration. It's become the norm. The finger-pointing, the name-calling, the accusing, the blaming over and over and over again It's exhausting and sometimes overwhelming. And if I haven't offended you enough, I pardon, I need to say that I feel like our legal system is broken. I agree completely that there are good people in the system, trying to do good things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it seems so bogged down with so many things that slow the process that you at least have to wrestle with the statement that comes out of the British politician in the 1800s that justice delayed is justice denied. And even when there's some conclusion and things do work through the system, sometimes you've got to wonder if justice has occurred at all. And and I also, I'm just going to say it, it feels like, to me, the wicked, particularly the wicked who have power, have somehow found a way to work the system so that good people feel completely hemmed in with no options, no choices, so the powerful become more powerful and the separation becomes even greater And here's what's in some ways the most frightening thing of all. And that is that the solutions that are proposed, the answers that are supposedly going to change that, are more problematic than our current circumstances. The solutions don't seem to be any better. In fact, they seem worse in the state of affairs we have right now. I don't know how long God is going to tolerate this. And everything that I've said, from the moment that I said, let me make a few personal comments, is Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and 13. Phew! I am so glad that's not about us, that it doesn't relate to us at all, and we can let that go and move on to some other things that Habakkuk might say. 
Huh. Amazing. This minor prophet. For those of you who are struggling to know where he is at, I would encourage you, might be easier instead of going to the table of contents, go right to the New Testament, Old Testament break right before Matthew, go back five books, little tiny book, three chapters of Habakkuk. There you will find, granted, slight paraphrase, but I don't think I was unfaithful to anything that was in those five verses. Maybe, maybe Scripture has something to say to us today. Let me put Habakkuk in a context so that you'll understand a little bit of what Habakkuk was trying to address in that moment. We're not given a specific date, but the content of the book gives us a pretty good clue of when the book was written and the circumstances that surround it. And I need to just give a little bit of history so that you understand. The place we now know as Israel is a really strategic piece of land. It is today, but even more so back then. Strategic because it was such an important trade route and migration route that moved between three continents. It was the pathway that you went if you were moving from Europe down to Africa or from Africa over to Asia Minor and into Asia. It was the trade route, the migration route, and in many ways such an important piece of land that it became a political route as well. Because of that, the Assyrians came down and conquered a good portion of that territory. And they were ruling during a good portion of that uh, 600 to 700 B.C., that century. But there was another empire that was on the rise at the end of that century. The Babylonians were flexing their muscles. They were um, showing their grit. They were pushing boundaries. They were beginning to grab hold of territory. They were moving into places and claiming it as their own and were beginning to move into this portion of the Middle East that was such a strategic place of, uh, piece of land and the place where so many of the Jewish people lived. Right in the midst of it was Jerusalem, their sacred holy city. Well, as this movement came down, a surprise protector came on the scene. Really, probably not intentional. It was an ally of Assyria. It was the Egyptians. They came up from the south and they kind of set a barrier to the movement of the Babylonians and maybe inadvertently, but regardless of the reason, it happened. It kept the Jewish people, particularly Jerusalem itself, from being completely overrun. So this is an interesting state of affairs. But in 607 B.C., there was a battle at Carchemish, where the Egyptians were pushed back and overrun and pushed back past the Euphrates. And they retreated. And it really left this space and place open for the Babylonians to move in and take over. So that's the context 
of when Habakkuk is living. He's observed all of these things. He's watched what happens. And in the midst of this, we hear him proclaim at the beginning of chapter 1 a statement not so much about the Babylonians or the Egyptians. And to be truthful, it's not even really about the Assyrians who have had control of at least a portion of this area for a while, though not the southern kingdom. He's saying it about his own people. His own people who he anguishes over the fact that they have left God's word. They have no longer treated sacred God's gift of Scripture to them. They have pushed it aside and instead have embraced their own direction and allowed in their culture for all kinds of things to change. And they have moved from a culture of peace to a culture of violence. Habakkuk sees it all around him and cries out, do you not see the violence that is right in front of us? He calls on them and says, our discourse is so contentious. It's so discouraging because it's not who we are. It's not who we're intended to be. How have we become this way? Oh God, I can't imagine that you can tolerate this. In fact, he asked the question at the beginning of the book, Oh Lord God, how long, how long will you tolerate this going on? Justice has been perverted. The systems no longer work. The wicked and powerful become more powerful and then more wicked. This is the proclamation of Habakkuk. And then, right after this, many of you in your Bibles, you will see a topic heading that says the Lord's answer. I, I would suggest that maybe that is a slight misnomer. That's not in the original text. It is put in there as kind of a subject heading so that you can follow along and know what's to come. I would suggest that maybe the more likely heading is Habakkuk's understanding of the Lord's answer. Because the Lord's answer comes in chapter 2. We're not there yet. Here, Habakkuk looks at what's going on and believes that the Lord's response to this kind of turning away from God's word is that the Babylonians, referred to in this chapter as the Chaldeans, that the Babylonians are going to come in and destroy everything that's unjust. Those people who have hoarded power and misused and abused others and been inattentive to the needs of the needy and all of the kinds of things that are so important, he believes that now that Egypt has stopped holding back the troops, that God will allow the Babylonians to come in and destroy all of the things that they know of themselves. And Habakkuk's cry is, oh God, that answer's worse than the problems we have right now. Do you not know them? 
they are even more wicked. They eat power for breakfast. They gobble up wealth and possessions as if it's dessert. They give no consideration to anyone else. In fact, their strength is their God. Habakkuk's complaint is, how can this be an answer? It doesn't seem like it's an answer at all. And then Habakkuk says, okay, God, I'm going to go up in my watchtower and I'm going to see what you say. Habakkuk just lets it out. I mean, he says, okay, I'm going to wait. But I love the phrase that he uses. I'm going to see what you say. You'd think it would be, I'm going to see what you do or hear what you say. Those two make a whole lot of sense. But this statement is, I'm going to see what you say. And I absolutely love that phrase. It seems to me that there is this reverence for what God speaks. Because God spoke the word and creation came into existence. God speaks the word and he holds creation in his hands. God speaks his word and his will comes to pass. God's word becomes action so that I can see the evidence of what God speaks. I want to join Habakkuk. I want to sit up in the watchtower and say, okay, let it happen. I want to watch this. Let's see what you're going to say about this. And God responds. In fact, he says, write it down. In fact, I'm going to encourage you, Habakkuk, to write it down with such large letters that people don't have to stop, sit down to read it, but if they're running past, they can see it and know it because it's in such large letters. Are you ready? But here is the problem with God's response. It's my problem. It's not God's. But it happens to me often enough that I'm pretty confident it's a pattern of God. And that is that God so often provides an answer, but it's often not an answer to the question I asked. Like the New Testament story where Jesus is asked, so tell me, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells this beautiful story and concludes by saying, so I'm going to ask you, who's the one that acted neighborly? But God, that wasn't my question. I know, but that's the question you need to answer. Over and over again, God's response is to get us to ask the right question because God's answer will transform if we'll listen. So Habakkuk's question really is, how long? And I resonate with that question. I, I don't necessarily need to know the day of the week, but if you could give me the week, that'd be great. If, if I just knew the month when your answer is going to come or when things are going to change. 
that'd be fine. I can hang in there for that. That's not God's response. God responds at multiple levels. First, he makes it very clear. He says, I know that you look at the circumstances as they are right now, but as is so true for all of us, our vision is bound to small spaces. God's response says that those who feast on others, who eat power for their meals and, and consume wealth and possessions as if it was theirs to have, they are, by their acts and choices, filling themselves with death. That's the proclamation from this book. Make no mistake about it. They are consuming into themselves the things that will consume them, and that will always inevitably lead to self-destruction and death. You may not see it right in this moment. It may appear as if somehow the world got turned upside down and that the wicked prosper and somehow make their way and do what they please. But that's not how I created creation. The way I created creation is that when those things happen, the people who participate in those things have already begun the pathway that leads to death. And make no mistake about this either, that if you choose to do that, you're not exempt. It is simply a truth of creation itself. But let me tell you in contrast, the righteous, they live through faithfulness. That's an interesting phrase. I love the assertion that has been made about the true nature of righteousness or righteous. Typically, we look at that word and our immediate kind of go-to is that that's a moral term, to live ethically, to live morally. Actually, that is true about those who are righteous, but that's not first and foremost the nature of the word as it's depicted in the Old Testament and then reiterated in the New. Righteous is first and foremost about relationship. The moral side of behavior is an outcome. For the righteous have moved into relationship with the eternal God. When Jesus becomes Lord of the your life, it is this invitation into relationship, and it's out of relationship that moral living comes. So this notion in this phrase of what Habakkuk says God is proclaiming to us, that those who have moved into relationship with God and now live out of that relationship in moral ways, they will move through this life in faithfulness and that is life itself. That's eternity beginning now. 
That's the difference between the two. Those who are on a pathway that goes to destruction and those who are on a pathway that leads to life. The themes in this book really are the themes that reside throughout all of Scripture. They don't include all of the themes in Scripture, but the two we've referred to time and again because they are time and again throughout Scripture is that God calls us to worship Yahweh, one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. It says at the end of chapter 2, all of the ways in which these people have created for themselves gods of silver, gods of gold, gods of power, gods of things that distract us from the worship of Yahweh and to be in relationship with God. Idolatry. The other piece of this is, and love your neighbor as yourself. Justice. To step into places where we become a vessel of justice in the world in which we live. I've been incredibly moved by both the work, but also the message of Brian Stevenson. He's a person who's given his life's work to be an attorney for adolescents who are facing death row. What a terrible place to be, though he doesn't view it that way. What an oppressive place to be, and he acknowledges the difficulties of it makes a statement that just is hard. He says, the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. I really don't like that phrase at all. And I can't come up with a good reason for why I don't like that phrase at all. Part of it is because it confronts me. It makes me face the reality of how much work I give, consciously or unconsciously, to being insulated from hard issues, difficult questions, in my own practices. It makes me think about things that sometimes I work at trying not to think about. It calls me back to my faith. Ha! Huh. God forbid that that should happen, Lord. That somebody should make me wrestle with what my faith means. Does it mean anything? Well, if it is faith, and there is any truth at all to that statement that the righteous shall live in faithfulness, then it means I have to address what it means to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and to love my neighbor as myself. I can't walk away from that. I can't pretend that that calling isn't there. 
I can talk all I want and I can voice my complaints to God about the things that I see in the world, but I ultimately have to listen well when God comes back and says, so is there a chance you're asking the wrong question? And will you hear my answers to the questions you need to be asking? And the answer is that there's a pathway that leads to destruction, and it's true. It is there in my telescope vision. I may not see it, but it's there, and it's still true. Apart from the minuscule pericope that I'm looking at right here. But do I believe God's word is faithful? That there's a pathway that leads to life? And that I participate somehow in life giving forces in other people's lives? I, I love that Salt Team is here. committed to be leaders, to wrestle with hard questions, to say, what do we do with it? I don't know what the easy answer is, but to simply stay there long enough to say, what might God lead me to do? That's leadership. Here's Habakkuk's response at the very end of chapter 3. Habakkuk says, O Lord, I will wait patiently. Mm. Not sure I can get even past that phrase. I will wait patiently. Though the fig tree doesn't bloom, though the grapes never appear on the vines, though the olive grove never yields any produce. Though the fields don't produce any crops, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cows in the barn, oh Lord, I will rejoice in you. I will find joy in God my Savior. You, sovereign Lord, are my strength. You will give me feet like the deer so that I can stand in high places. Habakkuk is saying, I've heard your answer, Lord, and I believe. I've heard your words, and I trust. I've heard your invitation, and I'm stepping into relationship with you. My faith is not dependent on what I am seeing right in this moment, but instead on what I see that you are saying. How about you? For some, this whole message may seem incredibly contemporary, for the moment we are collectively. 
For others, this may feel very individual, very private, that for you, it has felt during this season that there have been no figs on the tree, no grapes on the vines, that it has been a season where the fields have not produced anything. I'm sorry for those seasons. But the righteous live by faith. God's word is true. And we are called to a place where we live into that truth by our faithful living. The invitation with Habakkuk, stand with me on the watchtower because God's at work. Nothing has left his sight. He's not going to sleep at the wheel. He is aware of all that is going on. And God knows your plea. Hear Habakkuk's voice this morning for you. I'm going to invite our band to come forward. I'm going to offer a word of prayer. My hope is that you might allow yourself to have ears that hear eyes that see things in a new way, a heart that's soft enough this morning that the Spirit can speak to you however the Spirit chooses. Oh God, this book does not feel 2,600 years old, Lord, And maybe the power is that your word is so alive that people through the past 2,600 years have come here to hear your truth spoken, their faith increased, their hope built, and our shortcomings challenged. Father, I'm afraid this morning we begin with confession. Confession for the ways in which we have contributed to the things around us. The ways in which we've insulated ourselves from the difficult things that confront us right in our face every day. We want to be your people. Using the amazing resources you've entrusted to us. Time. Talent. Finances. Relationships to glorify you, to honor you. We want to live into your truth. Give us the courage to believe your truth. Even if things temporarily get worse before they get better. God, this morning after confession, we want to bow at the altar of worship of you. All of the idols that have grown up in our journey, the things that have drawn our attention away, Father, we set those down and we bow at your altar. You are sovereign. You are our God. We also want to bow at the altar of your justice. 
Help us, Lord, to love others as we love ourselves with a love that can only be explained by your grace and your precious promise living in us. Help us to kneel, literally or figuratively, this morning, Lord, where our hearts are given over to you, surrendered to the truth of your word. Oh God, we are yours. Lead us, we pray. Amen.